Welcome to episode 26 of the It Matters to Me podcast. I'm your host, Adam Casey, and my guest today is Bobby Gill, Director of Development and Communications for the Sabre Institute. Before he had that title, though, this expertly trained biological resources engineer was a lead scientific reviewer at the FDA, close to where he grew up in Beltsville, Maryland. That is, until he and a couple friends ran through the streets of D.C. one day without pants and helped found Cupid's Undie Run, a national nonprofit that has raised millions of dollars for neurofibromatosis research since its inception in 2010. Oh, and did I forget to mention that he also has a pretty prolific ultra running resume and even at one point had his skydiving license with over 800 jumps logged. Since making the leap into regenerative space at the Savory Institute, Bobby now explores the intersectionality of personal and planetary health and how to distill the complexity of these issues to new audiences. During our conversation, you'll hear us reference a recent TEDx talk that Bobby gave about his work at the Savory Institute back in 2020, and I really encourage you to give that a listen because the message about holistic land management and its positive environmental impact is a storyline that doesn't get enough attention. Now, Bobby's clearly got a diverse background, and his ability to wear so many hats is something I genuinely admire. Now, a very quick note before we get started, I actually recorded this conversation while on the road and I was having some microphone issues, so there might be a slight echo on my end, but hopefully it doesn't distract too much from the conversation and it's not that noticeable. This was such an authentically fun interview, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. So enough from me here. Let's get to it. Here's my talk with Bobby Gill. All right, Bobby, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I am doing really well. Glad to be here. Oh, man, we're, you know, we were talking just before I hit record about uh, how thankful I am that you're able to make it on the show. We had we've had a few, you know, there, this is probably the one of the episodes that I've been looking forward to the most. And I don't know if it's because we've had to cancel it so many times before. <laughs> and And I will take full responsibility on those like one time. I forgot to put it on the calendar. Another time I was deathly ill. So like, you know, I think this is third time for the charm. So I'm looking forward to it as well. How dare you get sick? How <laughs> dare you get sick? Hey man, I don't take responsibility. I blame my one-year-old daughter. It is all her fault. On record. Awesome. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, you know, one, one way I try to stumble about uh, the podcast in the intros is getting getting a more personal feel for the guest uh, by asking the probably the most obnoxiously cliche question uh, about the the guests and how they were raised. Um, but I feel like it gives a great insight into who you are and, and maybe, you know, how you became the person you are, you are today. Um, but that question is, you know, if I knew you growing up, and let's say I had the opportunity to probably embarrass you in front of a group of friends, wherever they not, that might be, and I'm giving like a toast at a dinner and I get the chance to stand up and tell all my Bobby Gill stories, but only the embarrassing ones. What types of stories would I tell about you and who you were growing up? Oh man. Um, growing up. Um, that is a really fantastic question. I would say that, you know, I spent a lot of my childhood riding BMX bikes you know, we kind of had dirt jumps and, and a little track in my backyard. And that was kind of the neighborhood hangout, you know, where we were always, you know, riding BMX and having a good time working on bikes. So, you know, being on two wheels was always a big part of my childhood. Um, my, I was also the chubby kid growing up. So my nickname was Porkchop. Um, and I think that is where my affinity for uh, physical fitness came from, you know, trying to counterbalance that. And that's kind of what led me towards ultra running uh, in my 20s. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was a, I was a good kid, straight A student, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, I was, like I said, I was the chubby kid. I also had long hair. So that's like, you, you don't really have to tell stories. You really just have to show a picture. 
of me as a kid. I was I was the kid that definitely stood out. You know, I listened to heavy metal, so I had long hair, but I was a straight A student. I ended up being class president in high school and, and all this stuff. So like there was a lot of um uh you know, there were a lot of multitudes in there, I guess. You know, I got so I'm a huge fan of any any runner in general, but you know, ultra runners in particular uh, about the origin stories of running. Mm-hmm. Um, my my own is uh, it was when I was stationed in San Diego and I joined the San Diego Track Club uh, on a whim, um, and was just going through like a really hard like me, you know personal period uh, and. I remember coming meeting as as cliche as this might sound. Uh, meet, meeting this like OG runner who was like sun, you know, his, his tanned leather skin from the sun, like fifty years old, wearing a seashell mm-hmm. necklace, tell, telling me about ultra running and and all the things it could do for me personally. But what's what's your origin story when it comes to running? Was it born out of being the self described chubby kid? Um, not necessarily. I, I think that's probably the deeply rooted reason why, uh, you know, I, I gravitated towards it so much and felt like, you know, I feel like I, there was something I had to prove, um, uh, whether that's to others or to myself, I'm not sure. Um, but the logistical, um, you know, timeline of how I got into it was my roommate at the time wanted to run a marathon. And so he was like, hey, man, you want to do a marathon? You want to train with me? I was like, sure. So I signed up and started training. And turns out he didn't end up signing up. He didn't train. He didn't do the marathon. So, so I did it myself. Um, but during that time, I kind of fell in love with running because I had never really run before. So prior to this marathon, I had never run more than five miles. Um, and while I was training for this marathon, I picked up uh, Dean Carnazes' book, Ultra Marathon Man. And that kind of opened my eyes to this world of, you know, uh, Western states and bad water and, and everything else. And I was like, oh, my God, what is this? Um, at the time, I was working for the FDA. Uh, so in Silver Spring, Maryland, I was a you know, scientific reviewer working on cardiovascular devices. Um, but one of the guys in my division, I was telling him I was training for a marathon. He was like, oh, that's cool. I run ultra marathons. And he was this guy, you know, he's probably like 60 years old, you know, didn't look like an athlete. And I was like, wait, what? I thought, you know, it's only these superheroes that are out doing this thing. But he started telling me about it and the groups that were in the area. And he introduced me to a coach locally um, just because I had questions and I was interested since I was training for a marathon. And I was introduced to this guy, Mike Broderick, who he was a former lawyer. Uh, He left his uh, law career to take on. Um, to becoming a running coach full time. And he ended up becoming my coach. And so he coached me, you know, from that first marathon up until my first 50k, which ended up being a couple months later, I did a fat ass run in DC called the Magnus Gluteus Maximus. Um, uh, No, 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 sorry, it wasn't MGM. It was the Potomac Heritage Trail. Um, Not that anyone here will know the difference between any of those, but it matters to me that I get it accurate. so yeah, that first year, I I went from never running more than five miles to doing a half marathon to doing a marathon, and then doing a 50K and doing a 50 miler. Um, so I did all of that in the span of a year. The 50 miler was the JFK 50 um, in Maryland. And so, you know, that's a classic. It's, it's one of the OGs in the ultra space. And so I did that and surprised myself. I think I ran uh, like an 823 which I was really impressed by as like a first time. Well, I mean, you know, 50K was my first, but I realized that I had some talent in the ultra space and I really liked it. And there was something about the challenge that was really exciting. So, you know, I just kind of kept going. I, I dove into the deep end. And then, so that was 2008, 2009, I ended up, I mean, I probably ran like, counting all the different fat ass 50 Ks, I probably ran like 20 or 30 ultras that year. Um, just like went ham on this thing. Um, you know, did my first hundred K I tried my hand at a hundred miles and had to drop out at mile 86, uh, because of some gnarly tendonitis that I had been running with since like mile 52. And like, 
it was a, a big defeat for me because it was my hundred miler debut. I was running in the top 10, you know, I was on pace. This was at Grindstone, which is in Virginia. I was on pace for a sub 24 and I was super stoked for it. But then, you know, shit hit the fan and I had to be carried off the mountain. But um, yeah, that's kind of how I got started in, in the ultra running space. And, you know, I did that for probably five years or so. Um, you know, I, I'm somewhat of a heavier framed guy, you know, I'm Polish, so big boned. And because of that, I've had kind of every single itis you can imagine, you know, like I was just always injured, you know, there's some sort of tendon in my feet or legs that was always given out on me. So I went through, you know, so many injuries over my ultra running career that eventually I was just like, I can't do this anymore. This is just too tough on me. Um, and you know, I, I think five years was a, a good run at it. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely miss all that time I, I used to spend out in the woods, uh, you know, eating goo. <laughs> Probably pooping in the woods too, because every, every yeah. runner's got a good origin story and a good poop story. So, Of course. Absolutely. I don't, I mean, I don't know if those are for this podcast, but yes. Oh yeah. Any, anything goes here. Uh, uh, the more, uh, I guess, yeah, the more gory, the better, <laughs> but I, yeah, I still, I, man, two years ago, I'll never forget this image and I won't go too detailed with it, but uh, two years ago I did never summer hundred K and there was a moment like coming around a corner in the trail and it's, we were, it was like part of the course where there was a spur to go do like a little out and back to get pick up like maybe six miles. And, um, so it was pretty deep in the race. So everyone's like super spread out and I, I'm coming back. I hit the turnaround and I'm coming back and I have like a very clear view in front of me of the next probably quarter mile through the, through the trees. And I see this female runner coming up and she, and she starts, I could just tell what was happening as just by her body language, but she's running and she's doing that, like looking all around left and right, <laughs> like looking behind her. And I'm like, please don't like, she doesn't see me. Please don't do this. I know that look I've had that look so many times, please don't do this. And yeah, it was like within a, within the next couple of seconds, she's just like on the side of the trail, just letting some of that, you know, too many yep. goos, I think. And yep. Just, yep. 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 And I, I, I tried, I tried my best to like, just like slow down and be like, okay, well, you know, maybe she's going to go high, but I like, I had to run by her and it was just like the most, I felt so bad for this woman. I had a, I had a similar story, but it was the opposite. The, the roles were reversed where I was running. Um, I ran old dominion hundred miler in 2010. Um, I ended up getting second place in uh, 19 hours, 11 minutes. And so that was like my crowning achievement of ultra running. And I kind of like, I just tapered off from there. Um, but during that race, I was running in second and probably around like mile 60 some, I pulled off to the side of the trail and the the number three runner was Sabrina Little. And she was like just a couple minutes behind me. So, you know, I'm drop trow off the side of the trail. And here she comes, like, I'm like, I'm in second place. I'm crushing this race. And then all of a sudden her and her pacer just like go right by. And I'm apparently not as far off the trail as I thought I was because she's just like waves. And I'm just like, Hey, okay. Oh, sorry. Just... <laughs> I ended up, I ended up catching her and, and passing her thankfully. Um, so I overtook my position. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I had to work for it. <laughs> you, 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 you dropped a little unnecessary weight and uh, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah um well going back you know uh yeah it, running and injuries i i don't want to say go hand in hand um but for me i'm definitely i feel like i'm still working through my own you know last year i, I, I had a stress fracture in my foot and mm. every time i go out for a run now i'm I just have this like deep paranoia, like any, any sort of like nerve pain or tinge in that foot. I'm like, Oh, I'm about to break my foot again. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah. So the running and injuries thing is, um, 
it sucks, but it's, you know, it's totally understandable. And I, you know, I looked at your ultrasound up and dude, you're, you're, (laughs) you were absolutely crushing (laughs) (laughs) for, for a brief period of time. I was a very elite runner. Um, I cannot say the same anymore. That is not currently the status. Well, you know, well, speaking of elite runners, and this is like now a theme, I feel like it's in every podcast that somehow at this point, you know, Mike Wardian. I know Mike Wardian. <laughs> the world knows Mike Wardian, apparently. Um, and talk dude about gets somebody, around. What's that? I said dude gets around. Oh, my God. He, you know, talk about somebody who doesn't get injured. The way that dude is. So I, I paced him out at Hard Rock at the end nice. of that last year. I only paced him for like nine miles. And it was maybe 60, 70 miles into the race for him. He still dropped me in the last mile. It was so embarrassing. But talk about somebody who has the who who doesn't seem to get hurt. Um, the way that guy is able to bounce back after a race and just like do success. He he treats marathons like five Ks, and he treats mm-hmm. hundred milers like fifty Ks. It's unbelievable. Yep. Um, but yeah, whatever his secret sauce is, that's what I'm trying to find. I don't know. I don't know, man, but it's, it's freakish. I mean, I, I fully agree because you see him go out and he'll run Western States. And then the next day he's out doing like uh, a 50 K or something. You're like, what in the hell? And then like, he's wearing a costume in one of them or something. And you're like, come on, man, you're just showing off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's I think one of, one of his recent ones. Cause I've, I've had him on this show and I think we were talking about like, he, 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 Sets, he has, of course, some record of running a race in a kilt. Um, and I think there's something with like uh, a few other costumes. But yeah, but how, but how do you know, Mike? I mean, I know he's from the Virginia, D.C. area, but how do you know? Yeah. Yeah. So from the Virginia, D.C. area. So in my ultra running days, I was very active with the HTRC, the Virginia Happy Trails Running Club. Um, and Mike was part of the club, too. So, you know, we saw each other out at events. You know, I was, you know, a front of the pack runner, as was he. So, you know, there were times where, you know, we had gone on runs, you know, we had a weekly ultra runner, uh, you know, meetup that would run through Rock Creek Park in DC called the Woodley Ultra Society, uh, the wusses. Um, so, you know, he, he considered himself a wussy, uh, as did I. And so, you know, we ran together there. And then, um, and then uh, interestingly enough, Mike and I both ended up being a finalist for the cover of Runner's World magazine, where they were doing a cover search contest back in 20, I want to say it was 2015. Um, you know, you like submit, you know, your accomplishments and like, hey, I deserve to be on the cover or whatever. Um, Mike and I both ended up being top 10 of that, interestingly enough. And so, you know, we both went out to New York City and, you know, for the photo shoots and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, we, we got to spend some time together with like the staff of Runner's World, uh, which was uh, good times. That's uh, yeah, that sounds awesome. <laughs> um, you know, all right. So b- back to, I guess, like some of the story. So y- you're in running, you're, you worked for the FDA. But one thing I do know, uh, another thing I know about you, and this is kind of, uh, you know, want to tie this whole theme of your kind of just your whole life story into just one episode, even though I know that's going to be impossible. Um, and, you know, you mentioned something earlier about like diving headfirst into things. But I one one thing we also have talked about and I know about you is that you all, you were or you were a skydiver and you were instructor rated, I think skydiver. At what yeah. point did that come into your life? Yeah. And I think it's funny. You're not the only person I've met that has the same interests in both skydiving and ultra running. I've, I've come across a few of us. So there's something about these extreme sports, uh, you know, there, there's something that, that attracts a specific type of person. Um, but for me, skydiving came first. Uh, I did my first jump between junior and senior year of high school, me and a buddy, we went out, uh, did a jump in, uh, did a tandem out in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, and then, cause it was the only place we were under 18, but they would let you jump if, if you were 16 or 17 and you had a, a note signed and notarized by both of your parents. So we figured out where we could go jumping. So we did that. 
Uh, and then the next summer when I graduated from high school, went and did another jump, did like two or three, and then, you know, uh, went in and did my AFF program. That's the accelerated free fall program where you go through to learn how to jump on your own. You're not attached to anyone. So I did that and just, that became a big part of my life, you know, all throughout college. I was jumping all weekend, uh, every weekend, pretty much, you know, going to boogies, doing all sorts of stuff. And by the time I graduated college, I was around 500 jumps. So I graduated college and then, you know, got my job at the FDA, but also around the same time, I got my tandem instructor rating because you need to have 500 jumps and a D license to, to get that. Um, so basically right out of college, I was working for the FDA as a scientific reviewer, uh, Monday to Friday. And then on Saturdays and Sundays, I was hauling meat at 120 miles an hour as a tandem instructor. Um, and so I was working seven days a week and I was wearing myself to the bone, you know, I was having a great time, but like it was exhausting. Um, and you know, I really, uh, I continued to jump for a few years, but it's when ultra running came into my life that I kind of tapered off with the jumping. Um, and I think it's because I had gotten my fill of skydiving. Um, you know, I had lost a bunch of friends to skydiving because a bunch of my friend group got really into base jumping and the statistics do not work in your favor there. Um, but it, you know, I, I think ultimately it was just a matter of uh, time, you know, time allocation. There's only so much time you have uh, if you're an ultra runner, because you got to get that mileage in. And I couldn't spend the time at the drop zone. I tried doing both for a period of time, but it just wasn't sustainable. So I eventually just kind of let my foot off the gas with skydiving and, and took up ultra running. And, um, you know, that was really the end of that, you know, sold my gear and, you know, haven't looked back. And, you know, um, I'm here in Prescott, Arizona right now. Um, and last weekend, speaking to that, you know, the amount of time that it takes. Uh, I, I just needed to, I needed to get a jump and so I could stay current. And so I had to drive from Prescott, man, down to Phoenix, just south of Phoenix, just to get a jump in, which is over like two and a half hours. And I, it just was one of those things where like I, I had to do it that last weekend or cause my 90 day currency rating would have been up, um, this week had I not, but yeah, having to make the decision between, okay, do it today. Do I run or today? Do I go jump? And not every day is yeah. like a two and a half hour drive, but even when I'm back in Colorado, um, yeah, like I get so hopeful about how my weekends are going to be spent and how I'm going to be at the drop zone all weekend and get in like 10 jumps and just be turning and burning. And then more often I, I always default, I, my, I always default to running when I have the opportunity. And so more often than not, I'm just like rolling up to the drop zone right before sunset and like hoping to get a sunset job in. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, you know, for me, skydiving, skydiving and jumping or uh, skydiving and running do go hand in hand because, and I'm very open about like, just, you know, my, my mental health issues after I got out of the military and just, you know, having like some of my medical history and both of those things were pivotal and are pivotal. Um, and as of recently, I've gotten into base jumping. Um, mm. so they're all pivotal in just helping me manage uh, a lot of those things. But yeah, uh, I get it. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's this, you know, I like, I, I, I almost hate it when people try to get me to describe why I, why I jump or do anything like that. And it's just like, because, you know, I don't want to, like, I'm not, I'm not an adre adrenaline junkie. Like I'm like, you won't find me on a motorcycle. Those things are death traps mm -hmm. in my opinion. Like I'm not trying to get like rad every minute of the day by doing all these things. It's just like the ability to confront my emotions. Um, and even mm -hmm. like for running too, it's just like wondering, you know, you, you're towing the starting line and you're like wondering, am I going to finish this race? I don't know. Like, yeah. I, yeah. Like it's like, am I going to, you know, am I going to die on this jump? I don't know, but you know what? Like, I'm not here to, you know, the, the phrase, like I'm not trying to make it to my grave um, in one piece. Like I'm trying to yeah. make it the most of it. But anyway, that's before we get no. way too cryptic well, about. <laughs> well, no, you know, just one thing on that point, you know, I, I will say I 100% hear you because, you know, I sold my gear back in 2013. I think that's when I did my last jump. And I will say that 
I have a skydiving dream probably at least once or twice a week consistently. I always have, and I probably always will. It's, it's something that is so deep inside of me that you can't let go of that feeling because it's so, I don't know. It's just so incredible. Like it, you, it's, it's ineffable. You can't describe it. You can't put words to it. You just have to experience it to know what it is that we're talking about. And then once it's like that, uh, that Da Vinci quote, you know, for once you have tasted flight, you will forever walk the earth with your eyes turned skyward for there you have been. And there you long to return. Um, you know, even if it was just one jump, you're never going to look at the sky the same. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a really special experience to be able to have been there. So true. So true. Especially, you know, I'm sure you've gone through quite a few clouds, but that was what, when I, I used to live in DC. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to like build this arc of how many things we have in common, (laughs) (laughs) but is, you know, I used to live in DC myself and I used, used to go jump down in orange and okay. orange, the fluffiest, puffiest, whitest clouds possible, and like in Colorado, and, and the small and the smallest little landing zone, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. very small. Um, that'll get your heart rate up coming in too quick for that. But the uh, but yeah, just like the clouds. Oh, God, that's you know, the, even just sitting here imagining and remembering going through a cloud, and ho- you know, and just like. Recalling the experience of just like when you're going through a cloud, because you know it's like your lizard brain. You know you're falling. You're very conscious that you're falling at like over 100 miles an hour, and mm-hmm. your lizard brain is like sees the object, which is a cloud, and it sees that it's coming up. And so you know that that part of your your brain is telling you like avoid that, like that, <laughs> like that, avoid yeah. that object. But like whatever higher level thinking, you know, you're, you're telling yourself like, no, it's okay. It's just a cloud. It's not going to do anything, but just like, as you're approaching and it's just having those two voices like yelling at each other. And then that split second, that's Mm -hmm. like fraction of a second that all of a sudden you're just literally in the cloud and not, and you're just like, (laughs) every time it happens, I still have like that whoa kind of moment because it's just like, it's just like, you know, at one, you know, one second you're, you have the earth's horizon in front of you. The next second you're encompassed in white and like, in the next second you're back out on earth. And it's just, it's, yeah, it's just such a, mm-hmm. yeah, to have dreams. You know, I, I think about it all the time. I definitely, uh, I hope I never stop dreaming about, about skydiving. It, you, uh, I, I can attest, you know, here I am what, like nine years later and I'm still dreaming about it and it's very constant. And so uh, I'm sure you will always have dreams about it. So you're, you're good to go. Awesome. All right. Well, so you, yeah, you, you've alluded to it. Uh, you've spoken directly to it. You used to work for the FDA. So how does young skydiving ultra, well, yeah. ultra running um, at the FDA, I believe. But yeah, but how do you, cause you were a biomedical engineer or a bio. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, how do you find yourself working for the FDA? I mean, I, I studied biomedical engineering in college. You know, I was interested in health and, you know, just a very technical, logic-driven, you know, left-brain sort of guy. So, you know, it seemed like the, the thing to do. Um, so, yeah, it, I went to the University of Maryland. FDA is like a couple miles down the road. They were hiring biomedical engineers. And I was like, oh, okay, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, that'll work. Um, you know, it was just the, the logical next step for me to do. Um, I ended up spending eight years at the FDA. Um, but there was something, you know, I, I think I learned a lot at the FDA and I appreciate my time there. But I think what I realized for me is I'm not a, a federal employee. I'm not the type of person that does well, you know, that, that wants to work in like the federal government. And I know it works for a lot of people. My mom is a lifelong fed. And I know a lot of people that are lifelong feds and career feds, and they've got a, a good life. Um, but for me, I think I was looking for something different. And I think I found that um, because I, I eventually, you know, while I was at the FDA, I started uh, a charity run. So me and a few friends, we, you know, just out of sheer boredom, we decided to start 
uh, an underwear run one winter, um, and we called it Cupid's Undie Run because it happened around Valentine's Day. And so it was a big party and an underwear run, and we raised money for the Children's Tumor Foundation, and it was a wild success. You know, the first year we raised 10 grand, second year like 55 grand, then 300 grand, then the next year 1.8 million, you know, like it was just like skyrocketing the success of this thing. And we started growing it beyond just DC. So the first two years were just DC. And then we started growing it. Um, I was doing all that while I was working at the FDA. And it became something that required more of my time. You know, like if I was going to get serious about this thing and raising money for this cause, uh, you know, because it was funding research for this rare genetic disorder called neurofibromatosis or NF. It's a rare genetic disorder that causes tumors to grow on the nervous system. Um, and one of my co-founders, little brother, uh, had it, which is why we were raising money for that. But yeah, you know, I, I kind of found myself spending a lot of time, you know, in my FDA days, you know, trying to also do Cupid's Undie Run stuff. And I realized I just needed to put my full weight behind it. So, um, in 2013, I quit the FDA and came on full time to, you know, work for this nonprofit that I had started. Um, and so I was the first employee and my, you know, job on day one was figure out payroll, figure out how you're going to pay yourself uh, and, you know, write an employee manual, hire other people. So, you know, that, that's what I did and, you know, ran that as chief operating officer for a couple of years. Um, did that in, through 2016, I want to say, and, um, you know, grew it to the point where I think by the time I left, we were raising somewhere between four and $5 million a year um uh for research and we were probably in 35 or 40 cities uh so that's mostly throughout the US but then a few in Australia as well so you know it's um it was a a fun time in my life it was you know something that i started when i was 25 so you know like hey let's run around in our underwear and have a big party you know it's it was the right thing to do at the time um but at some point i also had to grow up so, you know, I did that for a couple of years and, you know, gave it my all, but realized that it wasn't exactly where my passion was. Like there was more to life or, you know, like there was something deeper in me that I needed to find that resonant frequency of, you know, how does my career match with this? And I, I realized working at Cupid's that like working on a small team, uh, you know, working for a cause, you know, being mission aligned, that's something that resonates a lot with me but I needed to find exactly what the thing was. Um, and, you know, in my years at DC or living in DC, I started getting more into sustainable agriculture, you know, being curious about where my food comes from, going out and visiting farms, you know, reading books on the subject, watching Ted talks. Um, and along the way, I saw a Ted talk by this guy named Alan Savory. And he's, uh, you know, this rangeland ecologist from Zimbabwe, and he has developed a method called holistic management that basically is a, it's a framework for grazing livestock in a way that regenerates the landscape. So, you know, we hear a lot that, you know, cows are killing the planet, but what he was able to show is that like, well, it's not the cows themselves that are killing the planet. It's how they're managed. You can manage them poorly and destroy the land. Or you can manage them properly and regenerate the land. And when you do so, you grow more grass, which allows you to raise more animals, which makes it more profitable for the farmer and the farming community. With more grass, you're sequestering more carbon because of photosynthesis. So you're creating healthier soils and helping reverse climate change. And that activates the soil uh, sponge to be able to hold water and recharge underground aquifers. And you're rebuilding wildlife habitat and all this stuff. And seeing his TED Talk, was this aha moment for me where I realized, oh man, this is what I need to do. Like this, this is my jam. This is what my life needs to focus on because this gives me so much hope for the future and resonates so deeply with what I believe in and how I view the world. So, um, you know, I, I ended up moving to Colorado because of Cupid's Undie Run, because that's where we uh, created our office. So, you know, live in, you know, I was living in Denver, still live in Denver. Um, and I realized that the Savory Institute, Alan Savory's organization, uh, was just up the road in Boulder. So I, I sought them out and I, I used my connections and, and 
found my way into savory. And that was, you know, I started January 1st, 2017 and, um, you know, haven't looked back. It's been the most incredible journey of my life. And, you know, it's, I know it's exactly where I need to be. And, you know, it's, it's tough work. Um, there, you know, we are a small nonprofit that is working all across the globe doing, you know, big, huge things. And so, you know, it would always be great to have a staff that's like five times as big or, you know, much deeper pockets, but, you know, we're doing everything that we can and it just fulfills me so much on a day-to-day basis to be able to do it. And why does it fulfill you? Cause you know, if, if you told me your, your upbringing was you grew up on a farm in, you know, wherever, and you, you know, you're, you're a third generation cattle rancher, um, you know, hearing you talk about like something like this, which are the work you do at the Savory Institute and the, you know, the, the agriculture that they support would make a little bit more sense. But, you know, given your background, given all these things, like why does it resonate with you and why does it fulfill you? Mm -hmm. I would say because it, you know, during my time as an ultra runner, I started paying more attention to diet and what I was eating. And a part of that was, oh, why am I eating this, you know, just conventional feedlot beef that comes from the store? Like, that's not healthy. That doesn't have a good omega-3 to 6 profile. It doesn't have good amounts of CLA. Like, this isn't healthy for me. You know, it was a very selfish focus of what's important for me. So, you know, I started... Uh, that's how I got into agriculture is I started going towards grass-fed beef and looking at where I can get grass-fed beef. And the cheapest way to do it is not at Whole Foods, it's to go directly to a farmer and to buy, you know, a quarter cow and have a deep freezer that you, you know, purchase in bulk. So, you know, that I was doing that for personal health reasons. And I felt amazing, you know, going from being a chubby kid earlier in life to now being extremely fit and feeling so well-nourished the food that I was eating, you know, I went down more of like an ancestral paleo type diet uh, approach is what I most closely aligned with. And that was all well and good, but I was doing it for personal reasons. When I saw that the dietary choices I make could also impact planetary health and all of these different global crises that we're dealing with, it, it opened up this idea that I can be an agent for change, that the choices I make three times a day for the food that I put on my plate has an effect on the world around me and what legacy I live in this world. And so I think it brings me so much hope because a lot of what we hear uh, about climate change, about you know, uh, water issues, about whatever it may be, it's, it's very doom and gloom. And disastrous, and you feel like all hope is lost because the problem is so massive. And you know, how are we supposed? How am I, as an individual, supposed to solve climate change? I mean, atmospheric CO two is at four hundred and twenty parts per million. Like, you're telling me if I just drive a little less, then kumbaya, we've solved everything. Like, it doesn't. It doesn't add up, and so it feels a little hopeless, and you feel paralyzed by that fear. There's like the younger generations right now. You hear this term eco-anxiety that a lot of kids are facing because they've grown up hearing about climate change from day one. That's all they've heard is like, your world is going to get worse and worse and worse, and there's no path forward. Realizing that there is an alternate path forward, I think, is an incredibly important piece for everyone to realize because it takes you out of this victim mode and instead gives you agency that you know, we all can be agents of change in creating the better world that we want, whether it's for ourselves, whether it's for our families, whether it's for future generations, you know, we can all create that better world. And you know, the, the better world is built from small individual actions. It's, it's me deciding what I want to purchase, uh, you know, whether I support factory farming or whether I support small-scale regenerative farmers and ranchers that are regenerating their grassland ecosystems, um, you know, that's my choice. And when I make those choices, that sends signals back to the farmers and ranchers saying, no, this is what we want. This is what we're willing to pay for. And that helps build that cadre of regenerative land managers because they're going to follow 
the signals of the marketplace and see what people are interested in. That's why conventional agriculture, you know, this large scale industrial agribusiness is so massive and problematic these days is because it's cheap and it's easy. And so everyone goes to the cheap thing. But if we start, you know, opening up that different pathway, I think it opens up a lot of hope for folks. And, you know, for me personally, that brings me, um, you know, it, it just gets me out of bed in the morning because I know that I'm doing everything that I can. I totally agree with that. You know, it, it was one of the most disheartening things for me in recent memory when it comes to like environmentalism was a year, a few years ago, I was uh, down in Peru for a few months and here I am running around, you know, in the Andes, just literally getting lost. Um, and, but like in, in an intentional way, just like just going out and exploring and thinking I'm in this like remote area because of the ruins, not Machu Picchu, but just like other random ruins that only locals knew about were, you know, and told me how to get there. So I'm heading up to see these really small ruins, but significant in that like uniqueness. And I round a corner on, you know, in, like I said, in the Andes where I think I have, you know, another human being, it feels like hasn't been there for century around a corner. And all of a sudden I just see a pile of plastic water bottles, just like right there in the middle of the trail. And it's just like, how, how did this get here? And so for me as a runner, for sure, you know, I, for someone who takes advantage of the trail system in Colorado and all around the country and being outside, like, yeah, environmentalism is important to me. And I totally, you know, what resonates a lot with, your message, what resonates with me with your message is that individual empowerment. Um, You know, I have one of the, uh, another guest on that's been on the show was Megan Haney Greer, who I think lives up in Boulder. (laughs) So um, it's a Colorado theme. Um, But she, you know, she she talks about, she's the, uh, uh, she talks a lot about like that individual empowerment. And one thing that stuck out for me from that conversation, one thing she's a big advocate for is like, Hey, don't try to, you know, take the whole environmental fight on your shoulders all at once. Like that's impossible. Like, like, you know, you can do every, you can literally do everything you can to just like exist without producing any waste, but that's, you know, you're, you're, you're just one person, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. And so the, the idea of like not letting my car idle for more than like 10 seconds at a time. And just like those small incremental changes that in an aggregate do have a heavy, huge impact. Um, that's what I'm hearing what your message is, is about as well. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. And, you know, there's a piece there, you know, you, you were saying that, you know, how can I have, you know, not have an impact? You know, how can I like, you know, turn off my car or whatever? I think a piece of holistic management, you know, the methodology that we teach at the Savory Institute. So like just to to give the the 30,000 foot view for folks, you know, Savory Institute is a nonprofit we work with farmers and ranchers all around the world, uh, farmers, ranchers, and pastoralists. So anyone who is grazing animals on grasslands, we help them be the best land stewards they can be by grazing their animals in a way that kind of mimics those ancestral migratory patterns that you know the big herds of bison used to have as they moved across the Great Plains or the Great Wildebeest migration across Africa. We essentially mimic that in a modern context using portable electric fencing or, or herding them on horseback or four-wheeler. Um, and by doing that, you, uh, you create this positive effect on the land. Um, but the thing that I was going to mention is that the effect that we're creating isn't just a net zero. That, I think, is where a lot of sustainability and environmental conversations lie, is you know, how can we get to net zero emissions? That, of course, is critically important. Yes, the amount of fossil fuel that we use as a global society is out of Control, and that needs to get down to net zero as quickly as possible. But the reality is that atmospheric carbon is at 420 parts per million right now. So even if we get to net zero, even if we flatten the curve, we're still at 420 parts per million, and that's already wreaking havoc on our environments around the globe. So we need to do better than that. We need to do better than just no harm, net zero. We need to actually do good and create better outcomes in the world. We need to regenerate, you know, give back more than we take. And that's essentially what we are doing in terms of grassland management is 
we're not just saying it's a net zero, you're causing no harm on the land. We're teaching people how to grow more grass, which sequesters the carbon and stores the water and allows you to raise healthier animals and creates the wildlife habitat. You know, by having your herd on that land and managing them intentionally and carefully, you are creating a better ecosystem than when you got there. And so you're creating something better in the world that then gives returns, you know, whether it's in terms of food or ecosystem services like carbon sequestration or water retention, whatever it may be, you're creating that better place than you found it. Um, and that I think is, or for me, was an important realization that we can do more than just no harm. We can do actual good. And there are ways of doing that. Um, and, you know, as it relates to, to livestock and animal agriculture, the narrative that so many of us hear, you know, data, you know, from celebrities, from, uh, you know, from food brands, from whatever it is, is that, you know, livestock are ruining the planet, livestock are ruining the planet. And it's a very convenient talking point and it's very simple and it's easy to repeat. But the reality is, is that is not rooted in ecology. You know, we have always had grazing herbivores on our global grasslands. And grasslands are 12 and a half billion acres across the world. That's one third of the Earth's surface. The way, you know, they have always existed, uh, grasslands and grazers, they've always coexisted with one another. They've co-evolved for millennia. And we can't just get rid of those animals. Like grasslands need grazing to stay healthy. You know, like you think of a tree, a deciduous tree is going to shed its leaves in the fall. And then in the spring, it's going to grow new leaves again. That's that cycle of birth, growth, death, decay, and you know, it goes through the seasons. A, a blade of grass does not shed its leaves on its own. It needs a grazing herbivore to come and take that bite off the leaves, and that stimulates the regrowth. If you don't come and bite that grass, it's eventually going to die off and oxidize, and that ends up crowding out the land because you then have this dead vegetation that's blocking sunlight, the nutrients aren't cycling back into the soil. So you have to have the grazing stimulation to encourage that healthy uh, cycling uh, of nutrients and water and all these other things. I, I like to think of it like, you know, let's go back to running. You have a really long run. You do a 20 mile run. What are you going to do the next day? You're probably going to have a rest day. After a big intense workout, you need to rest and recover. And that's when you get stronger. The same thing is true for grazing on grasslands. You need a big, intensive grazing event, and then you need a proper recovery period where that grass is going to regrow, it's going to reestablish its root system, and it's going to get nice and vigorous and healthier and stronger than it was before. And if you keep going through that cycle, it's like training for an ultramarathon. You're going to get stronger and stronger and stronger as time goes on. The same with grazing your pastures. Your pasture is going to get more and more vigorous. It's going to get more and more productive with more and more forage. And you're going to have this beautiful, abundant, thriving landscape for every animal, not just the cows, but for the pollinators and for the earthworms and for the rabbits and for the elk and the deer and, you know, all the ground nesting birds. It's, it creates this ecosystem for everyone because of what you did on that land. So, yeah, I went off on a long tangent on that one. I don't even remember what the initial question was. But, you know, <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. I, my job, I'll bring you back in. Uh, you know, it's, um, yeah, not, now I have to do my job as host and, and reminding uh, what I had asked about or, or why it ties into this. Um, but, you know, you talked about like when you work with ranchers and uh, like l other ranchers and, and farmers, and I forget what the third one was, Um but, you know, the, when you work with individuals and, and you, you said it's like it, it is a convenient because it is convenient to think that, you know, less livestock means more grasslands because, you, you know, yeah, just for all the, the, the Disney-esque reasons we've those have been villainized or made to be villains. Um, when you work with farmers and ranchers and, and whoever the Savory Institute is working with, um, 
do they like do they readily accept what you're bringing to them or do you have to does it require like a lot of convincing on your part because you're basically telling them how to read how to do their job in a totally different way i feel or is that not even the case like what's the reaction when you approach or when you're working with new um with new ranchers or farmers um to this holistic management do they are do they readily accept it or is there a lot of pushback more often well an important piece of how we operate is we really operate from a pull strategy rather than a push strategy we're not trying to push our way of doing things on anyone because you know in agriculture there is tons of tradition there is legacy there are family roots you know, we don't want to disturb any of that. And honestly, it's it's too difficult. Like, it's impossible. If you try to go and knock on someone's door and say, hello, I'm from the Savory Institute. I know how to do this better than you do and your dad did and your grandparents did and your great-grandparents did and their great-grandparents did. You're all wrong. I'm right. Here, do this. Like, that doesn't work. So <laughs> we don't do that. <laughs> rather it's it's much it's it's much easier to just be a good example in life you know be the example of of what you want to create in the world so we operate through a global system of regional learning centers we call them our savory hubs we have 54 of them i think to date and so they're on all six inhabitable continents um and we work with you know the maasai in kenya and gauchos in patagonia and reindeer herders in Norway and cowboys here in the American West, you know, like if anyone has livestock on grass, we can work with them. And we, we have, and the results speak for themselves, but it's important for us to just have people in the region that can demonstrate that it's possible. And that is really the best calling card that you can have is just you're driving by and you see someone's property and you go, wow, that's a, you know, we we're, we're suffering through this drought. We've only gotten eight, eight inches of rain in the past year. And we are just suffering incredibly, but man, this property is green. Like what are they doing? That's different from everyone else. Like that is enough to get people asking questions. And with curiosity, that is someone taking, um, you know, making the choice to, to take that first step themselves rather than someone else forcing them to take that first step. So we really don't push our methods on anyone. We wait for folks to come to us and there is no lack of people, you know, that are looking to, to learn. Um, and I would say that's not necessarily cause like, Oh, I'm this great marketer. Um, I would say it's because, well, I, well, but the reality is, is that, the agricultural system that exists throughout most of the world is deeply flawed and it is doing no one any favors. It, you know, the, the farmers and ranchers and pastoralists that are out there across the globe are often skating by on razor thin margins and those margins get smaller and smaller every year. And so, whereas, you know, their two generations prior they were living well, or, you know, they had a comfortable life and, you know, it was honest work, but, you know, it was good work and, you know, they loved what they had and they were able to provide for their family. Now here you are trying to do the same thing. You're like, why the hell isn't it working? Why am I struggling so much? Why am I crippled by debt? Why, like, what is going wrong? Why don't the streams flow anymore? Like, why aren't my cows as fat as they used to be? Where did all those grass species go that used to exist or what happened to that herd of elk that used to show up in the fall? Like they're not here anymore. Like all of these things are happening, but they're happening at these very slow cycles. Uh, you know, we, I think as humans are used to very quick feedback loops, you know, you get a ding on your phone, you're going to go check it. You know, you're going to, you're going to go do the things that happen. You know, we're very good at responding to dopamine and chasing the shiny thing. We're not really as good at working in these long, slow biological cycles, like the, the pace at which a landscape changes. So, you know, you may have grown up on a farm or a ranch, but there might be things, you know, grass species that you haven't seen in your lifetime because they disappeared two generations ago. 
And so there's this generational amnesia where you don't even know it's possible for that grass to grow on your land, but it is. And chances are those seeds are hiding there in the soil. They're in the seedbed. And if you take care of the land, those grasses are going to reappear and just like magic. And, you know, we see that all over the place. Um, so there's an aspect, I think, of when working with people, kind of getting people more in the rhythms with the natural living world, working more closely with these biological cycles and, you know, kind of forcing people to slow down, be more observant, be more intentional with the things you're doing on the land. And when you do slow down and, you know, think in this more holistic manner where you recognize the interconnectedness of, okay, the choices I make for how I'm going to graze my animals has an effect on the landscape, which has an effect on the soil, but also on the wildlife habitat, which, but also like the food that I create is feeding my local community and it's creating local jobs at, you know, so like all of these things tie into one another. And so when you make decisions, you don't just want to think, how can I make more money? You want to think, how can I be the best steward of the land? How can I be the best, you know, representative of my community and of my bioregion? You know, how can I best serve this watershed? Not how can I just best serve myself? Um, and when people are able to shift the way that they think to start recognizing the connectedness of everything and make decisions in that manner, they start making decisions that benefit everyone. And they may be decisions where, okay, maybe if you're, you're weighing option A or option B, if option A makes you more money, but option B makes you happier in the long term and leaves a better world, you know, for future generations, like, maybe it's the smarter choice to, to, to choose option B. And I think that's the scenario that we find ourselves in a lot in life. Um, so, you know, rounding that all out, you know, you'll notice that I'm talking a lot about making decisions. Um, that's really a, a critical piece of working with people. Cause like we can teach people how to graze all day long. Like we've got a, a step-by-step -step process where you do the calculations, you chart it out and blah, blah, blah. You know, you go and do that. That's the easy part. Making decisions and changing the way someone sees the world. That's, that's really the work to be done because, you know, you, you can force someone to change their practices. Like I could put a gun to your head and say, you go do this right now. And they will, and they're going to change. And maybe it creates wonderful outcomes for their land. But as soon as I take that gun away, they're going to go back to their old ways of doing things. And so if we want to create sustainable, lasting change for, you know, whether that's lasting change in farming and ranching or in how we manage organizations or just how we treat others in the world, people have to come to these things on their own and they have to feel like they are like they want, they need to want to do the things that they are doing. They need to feel empowered. And, you know, going back to that thing that we talked about earlier is that having that agency to, to be that positive change in your life. When you feel that, it gives you a lot of power and it moves you, it can, it can move you in a really wonderful direction for yourself and for others. So true. You know, there's just so much, so many things in there that I want to pick apart. Um, but, you know, and I feel like I should make this like a whole podcast in its own, just talking to Bobby, because again, there's just so many, so many goddamn things that, uh, that I, that resonate with me that I really appreciate, um, what your, how you, your message of how you bring it out, you know, you're not doom and gloom. Um, you're not like, Hey, the world, this, you know, chicken, chicken little, the sky is falling. You're, you not only offer really, uh, impactful, I guess, courses of action, but you show how impactful they are. Um, and I'm, I'm 100, I'm going to link to your TEDx talk because we didn't even get to talk about your TEDx talk, <laughs> but I'm going to link to that in the show notes because it's so awesome. I watched it, you know, in preparation for this and I love, there's just so many things, um, that are so important in there and the message from that of just like empowerment and like you were talking about earlier, voting with your dollars and, and letting these ranchers know this is as a consumer, what's important to me. Um, but now, um, but yeah, kind of wrapping things up, you know, one thing you kind of touched on was, you know, the idea of changing minds and, and you know, and how, how to change other people's minds. And, uh, you know, it, it's, 
I, in preparation for this, I listened to some of the other interviews you've done. And one of the one thing that I think I listened to, it was an episode uh, maybe of 2020. Um, and you had mentioned quite, you know, pointedly, you were reading how to change your mind. Um, and I wanted to, one question I wanted to have uh, with that is, how is that, how's that book treating you? Because again, we're keeping with this theme of Adam Bobby, like kind of parallel tracks. Um, that, book, <laughs> that book is about psychedelics. I'm a software developer for a cannabis e-commerce company. <laughs> so I want to know um, how, yeah, if you were able to finish that book and what, what you thought of it. Yeah, well, you know, so I talked about earlier, you know, my introduction to agriculture when I was on my health kick. And a part of that was reading Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma. That book was one of my introductions to agriculture. You know, having grown up in a more, you know, suburban setting, um, Omnivore's Dilemma was really my first dive into agriculture. And I need to thank Michael Pollan greatly for that um, because it inspired me to the career path that I'm on right now. Um, when I, when Michael Pollan came out with How to Change Your Mind in 2018. Um, I actually read that while I was in Zimbabwe uh, in a hut on Alan Savory's ranch. Um, and every night, you know, with a flashlight, I was reading that in, in my little like thatched roof hut. And it just blew my mind what I was reading. Because, you know, I, you know, I grew up, you know, going to school in the 90s, just say no, you know, went through the D.A.R.E. program, all that stuff. And so, you know, I grew up psychedelics. They ruin your mind. You're going to jump out of a second story window like you're going to fry your brain. Diving and you're going <laughs> to. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I guess through a lot of my life, I've. I've always gone against the grain, um, you know, whether that's through skydiving or ultra running or ditching a very comfortable federal career or, you know, following a more ancestral health diet that kind of bucks conventional dietary guideline trends through farming and ranching, you know, kind of going against the conventional way of doing things and showing that there is a better option out there. Um, the way Michael Pollan described the history of psychedelics kind of made me realize, oh, there might be something similar going on here that maybe there's a different way to view them. So that opened my mind to the possibility that there was more than what I knew. Um, and over the years, I have had uh, chances to learn firsthand about that. Um, I will say that psychedelics have um, been a very important part of my life the last few years. They have done absolutely incredible things for how I view my place in the world. And, um, and, you know, it's been wonderful for my marriage and just like all sorts of things. I, I credit psychedelics for a lot of the developments in my life over the past three years or so, you know, and I definitely do not look at them the same as, you know, I would have, you know, five, 10 years ago. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing. I mean, we're going through a psychedelic renaissance right now where lots of people are realizing the positive effects that they can have, you know, for, you know, treatment of depression, PTSD, you know, all sorts of issues. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, as quote, a healthy normal. Um, I think there's a lot of positive that can come from that as well, not just as a medication that is solving some, you know, problematic underlying condition, but in terms of enhancing uh, the quality of someone's life. So, you know, they're definitely an important part of my life. I credit them for a lot. And um, yeah, it's funny that we have that in common as well. <laughs> you, you and me both, man, uh, we're both very lucky to live in Denver um, with what recent legislation around psilocybin. Um, and yeah, I can, uh, I can definitely attest to psychedelics having the impact that they've had on me in such a tremendously positive way. And that's why I'm so fortunate to work for um, this company, Jane, um, that is spreading that message. And so 
man, Bobby. Yeah. That, that's great. And I will say it's probably important whenever psychedelics are mentioned that that there is clarification that uh, psychedelics are not a panacea. They are not a cure-all for everything out there. There are contraindications. You know, if you have any sort of familial history of psychosis or schizophrenia or bipolar or any sort of things like that, you should really uh, proceed with caution, probably not do these things, you know, consult your physician, yada, yada, yada. All of that, I think, is important to note because there's a lot of hype in the news right now about psychedelics and people are like, oh, it's this cure-all, it's going to solve everything. And while there is tremendous good, it is not a silver bullet that's going to solve everything. And as with anything in life, it's, it's how you manage it. It's the intentionality you bring to the table. You know, in psychedelics, we talk a lot about set and setting. It's your mindset, you know, how you go in to, to this experience. It's the surroundings around you. It's that intentionality that you hold. And, you know, that gets back to what I was talking about with grazing. It's not just the grazing practices. It's that paradigm shift. It's how you see the world. And it's the same thing in psychedelics. It's not just what is this drug that you're taking and that opens up your mind to this different world. It's like, what is deep down in your heart and how might this amplify that so that you can do more, become better and move in the direction that you want to go? I wholeheartedly agree. And thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, I'm, I I always say I'm the last one to advocate like, oh, you're sad. Just go take some mushrooms or go do some acid. Like, no, 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 no. And like, you know, there's, there, you know, I, I'm, I'm very hopeful for the clinical trial, you know, the FDA uh, research that's going into these things. Um, but yeah, again, I think it's, it's so promising and it's, um, and, I'm, and I'm so excited to see it in, you know, in our lifetime, what's happening. And that's, you know, again, why I joined Jane is because I want to be part, a part of that advocacy, not only on the business side, but just on the policy side of, of changing the narrative around it to change people's minds. Um, well, Bobby, I, you know, this is one of those conversations where I wish I, I, I wish I could just talk to you about so many things, but um, you've been absolutely so gracious with your time. And we've only hit on like some of the highlight, that 30,000 foot look at some of these <laughs> things. And, um, you know, I would love, to, I, I'd love to have you on the show uh, again sometime because I know that there's just so many more things for you on the horizon. Um, but yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and, and, and for sharing your views both personally and professionally. And um, man, it's been great. And uh, yeah, I hope we get to do this yeah. again soon. I hope so too. This has been a, a, a really fun conversation and, you know, I, I think, you know, we've just barely skimmed the surface on the things that we can talk about and probably the things that we have in common. So, you know, we can schedule a round two and figure else, figure out what else there is. All right, Bobby. Well, thank you so much. And we'll have you, uh, we'll talk again soon. I right, appreciate it, Adam. Thank you. That's a wrap for this episode of the It Matters to Me podcast with my guest, Bobby Gill, Director of Development and Communications for the Savory Institute. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to the Savory Institute's website and Bobby's TEDx talk, as well as anything else that came up during our conversation. Also, if you have a minute and you enjoyed this episode and the podcast overall so far, please consider leaving a review and sharing it with a friend. And like always, if there's someone you think I should have on the show, please let me know by writing an email to adam at itmatterstomepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. And until the next one, this is Adam Casey signing off.